this thing we're doing called the week of prayer. And um, you may notice, let me just give a quick uh, little shout out to the, the prayer guide. Uh, you may notice that uh, usually I, I do a handout for you for the sermons and things like that. Uh, I, I spent the week trying to develop this. I did not have the time to do another handout. So I'm sorry, you'll have to really track with me as I preach. And if you are the type that really benefits from seeing uh, where I'm going or my main points, you can always jump on to mercyhillchurch.org and uh, get the e-version of my uh, manuscript, really, even right now. So uh, I won't know whether you're on Facebook or whether you're actually looking at uh, the notes and things, but uh, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. This prayer guide, though, like Tolu said, is intended to help guide you through the week, um, to help give you some direction in terms of what to pray for day by day. Uh, and really, it's kind of moving through our mission statement, uh, piece by piece, and giving us things to think about, to pray about, certain scripture texts to meditate upon, little space to journal. I'd, I'd really encourage you to make use of it. Uh, I think it'd be awesome if we as a church really engage in prayer together. Uh, so I'd, I would like to personally invite you, come on out this afternoon and uh, let's seek God. But we'll, we'll talk more about this uh, stuff as we dive in. You can open up your Bibles to Second Chronicles. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand, we'll get one to you. Um, but this morning we're going to be in Second Chronicles. Some of you guys have no idea where that book even is. Uh, it's kind of in the middle of your uh, Old Testament. Um, you got it's it's within the historical writings. There you've got uh, Samuel and Kings, and then move towards Chronicles. You just kind of flip your finger, you'll find it. There's quite a lot uh, of uh, pages in this uh, in this book, so you'll find Second um, Chronicles. Let me give you a moment. We're in Second Chronicles 20. Verses 1 through 19 is what we're going to read this morning, although next week we'll come back and we'll kind of finish the story that this begins. All right, Second Chronicles 21 through 19. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Mayanites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Jehoshaphat was king of Judah here. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are at Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And so they're in the temple and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they've lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold... The men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you've given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? 
For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Lord, you, right now, we just recall, you are Father, yes, but you are a Father who is in heaven. You are, at one and the same time, far above us, infinitely so, and yet right here with us, intimately so. We thank you for your son, for Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you for the sending of your spirit, fills us, empowers us, equips us, comforts us, convicts us. God, right now, we are just asking that you would come in this place and meet with your people. We turn our eyes away from ourselves. We turn our eyes away from the great horde, if you will, the great armies that may be coming against us right now. And we look to you. God, I pray that this morning you would use our time together to stir your people's hearts to prayer. And God, I pray that as we pray, your glory would fall, your spirit would fall, you would be on the move in this place. We'd see you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Okay, so, real quick, let me grab some water. It's, It's funny, I, uh, I wanted to do a week of prayer uh, coming into this new year, um, you know, as we were approaching 2020, and I thought, oh, it would be good. I've always kind of wanted to do, you know, like a set-aside kind of week of prayer as a church, 
And um, I've seen churches do this before. A lot of times you kind of do that kind of first week of January. And it's when kind of people naturally are hitting pause and reflecting a bit and already a little bit more perhaps prayerful, looking back at the year that just passed, looking ahead at the year that's coming and seeking God together as a church in a purposeful way. I thought, that sounds good. But then my Decembers, as I kind of I was trying to prep for that in January, they, my Decembers are crazy. All right, I got two kids with birthdays back to back. Then you got Christmas. Then you got, you know, the church and the volunteers, people all over the place. So there's all sorts of extra things to do. And I, I couldn't get it done. And the, the funny thing is, I say it's funny because for some reason, uh, when I missed that little, you know, entry point of 2020, first week of January thing, I thought, shoot, I missed my chance to do a week of prayer. Uh, I don't know why, but I, considered that to be kind of the only real uh, legit option for doing something like this. And uh, somehow, uh, somewhere along the way, it occurred to me, uh, I know I sound pretty dense, I should have gotten this already, but it occurred to me, man, you can do a week of prayer anytime. <laughs> it doesn't have to be, the, I mean, first week of January, we'll shoot for that next year, all right? You heard it here, 2021, January, first week, let's do it. This year, though, I was a little bit behind, and we're going for it now. Uh, February 23 to March 1st, we're going to do this together. Um, and just to clarify, uh, of course the church is always called to pray, right? We're always, when I mean, we have a regular prayer meeting, uh, and we are always called to be in prayer. This is supposed to be a house of prayer, but nonetheless... Um, it is still, I think, a great idea to set aside special time in the year to specifically focus on that and to call one another into that, to encourage one another towards that together. So that's really what this is all about. That's why I'm stepping out of Luke for a couple of Sundays, and we're going to be in Second Chronicles 20. Now, the title of these two sermons, uh, I think you can find it actually in your bulletin, but the title of these two sermons are, are, will be this, uh, Stop drop and roll, what to do when your world catches fire. Stop, drop and roll, what to do when your world catches fire. So this morning we're going to look at those first two pieces um, in the stop, drop and roll kind of uh, idea. That's essentially my outline, if you will. This morning we're going to deal with stop in verses 1 through 3, the first part of 3 of our text, and then drop verses... uh, basically latter part of verse 3 all the way down to verse 19. Next week, we'll pick up this idea of roll uh, as we move into verses 20 and, and following. Uh, but now, before I get going, I, I should at least make sure we're clear on what I'm referring to when I say stop, stop drop, and roll. I, I assume we all know what that is. I, I actually don't know if they still teach this in school anymore. Uh, in fact, I think I saw something on the internet that said they don't. I don't know. How many, how many of you as kids actually got taught? You know what I'm talking about, stop, drop, and roll. You were taught that in school or whatever. Actually, not all of you. Okay, well, yeah, okay. Um, it's basically this idea that, hey, listen, children, if you ever catch fire, if, if you ever should catch fire, <laughs> here's what you do. You don't go running around, you know, you don't, you don't rip off, try to rip off your clothes. You, you just stop, you drop, and you roll. Um, now, I, I wonder, uh, I, I assume, I guess, that we've all been taught this in one way or the other, but I wonder, 
How many of us have actually had to use this? Show of hands now. How many have actually had to use this? No, nobody? Well, that's good. That's good news. Uh, uh, you know, you have like you're leaning over the stove and your apron catches in flame or, or, or you are, you know, out with your buddies, you know, camping and, you know, spark kicks up, catches the flannel and, and you, you, you remember, stop, drop and roll. Nobody's had to do that. It's funny. I saw um, this meme a, a little while back it said this. Stop, drop, and roll was always such a big deal as a kid. I really thought I'd be on fire more than this as an adult. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's exactly right. They're drilling that into us. Stop, drop, and roll. You kind of get move into your adult life going, man, I am going to catch fire a lot. i got to be ready. And then you kind of maybe get uh, a little saddened about the fact that oh, I've never really had to use this amazing piece of information. Well... Don't despair. It turns out there is actually much more need of it than you first thought. Um, I'm not talking here anymore about literal fire, obviously. Um, But I'm talking about what Peter in his epistle calls fiery trials. That's 1 Peter 4.12. Fiery trials. I'm talking about when your life just kind of bursts into flame. These are the sorts of things that you and I are going to face every day in one way or another. In fact, in that same epistle to read it in context, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, he's he's saying, it's coming. The fire is coming. You're going to catch fire. It's going to get hot. It's going to be hard. Don't be surprised. Be prepared. So, okay. When the fiery trial comes upon us, what are we supposed to do? Well, you can thank your elementary school teacher for this, because I think what I'm going to see in Second Chronicles 20 is you're supposed to stop, drop, and roll. I'll make sense of that as we go here. Let's take it then one uh, piece at a time. First, we're going to look at this idea of stop, verses 1 through the first part of verse 3. Look again at verses 1 through 2 in particular. Let's read this. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Maonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Now, I'm just pretending I know how to pronounce these things, just so you know. You know, fake it until you make it. Do I sound, you know, sound legit like a scholar? I hope so. Um, but here, here's what we need to know. Jehoshaphat is a king of Judah at this time. And actually, uh, to Jehoshaphat's credit, taken on the whole, the evaluation of him in the scriptures is that he was a good king, which certainly could not be said for very many in this period of Israel's history. But nonetheless, here for Jehoshaphat, things are not going well. 
In our text, things are not going well for him. Three enemy nations have formed a sort of coalition and are now barreling towards him, as it were, just a few miles away from Jerusalem. So here's what we might call, I think, a fiery trial. Um, Now, before I, I really move towards this idea of stopping, this idea of stop, uh, there's something I wanted to bring out real quick because I think it may be encouraging to some of us. It's encouraging to me. Um, and that's just, if you look closely at verse 1, our text actually begins uh, in this way. After this. Which, of course, if you're you know, a, a student of the Bible and you want to read the Scriptures in context, begs the question, after what? The idea here is that this trial, this fiery trial, these, these, this coalition of enemies that are now encroaching upon uh, uh, Judah here, Jerusalem, King Jehoshaphat, uh, uh, this, this whole thing is happening after something else. And the narrative links us, uh, trial, back to whatever happened before. And we say, after what? This trial comes... To Jehoshaphat, after what? And those of us who know our Bibles and the story of Israel may be inclined to say, well, okay, I'm pretty sure I can guess what's happened here. Jehoshaphat, in one way or another, was unfaithful. He, He did something that God didn't like. And so in comes the discipline or the judgment of the Lord. That's why this fiery trial is upon him. And such a thing would be a good guess. Sometimes that does happen. But it's not the case here. It's not. I love my ESV study Bible. You need to get one if you don't have one. Um, but let me read to you from the ESV study Bible's note on the opening verse of our text. It says this, The invasion followed Jehoshaphat's religious and judicial reforms in chapter 19. And so it was not an instance of divine punishment, but rather an opportunity to exercise faith. So the this that this trial comes after is not Jehoshaphat's sin. It's Jehoshaphat's faithfulness. If you go back and you read chapter 19, what you see is, Jehoshaphat is is appointing judges in all the various cities within his kingdom and saying, listen now, you judge in the fear of the Lord and in accordance with the law of God. Don't you give in to man. Don't you take a bribe. He's trying to reinstate in his people uh, God's law and a faithfulness to Yahweh. He is being faithful in these moments. Obedient, standing for God in these moments. And yet, after this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Mayanites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Now, I bring this out here just as a, almost just kind of speaking into the margin, if you will. Because I think some of us need to hear it. Some of us, even now, perhaps, are going, man, my life feels like it's caught fire. It's so hard. Like, we're talking, cry yourself to sleep hard. 
And things just seem to be going wrong, one thing after the other. And you kind of wake up and you go, God, look out at, at the mess that is your life and go, God, what did I do? <laughs> what have I done? I mean, show me. I'll repent of it. I'm sorry. Just stay your hand. We assume it's, 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 it's his displeasure. It's, it's his discipline. Now remember, even the discipline of the Lord, he disciplines those children that he loves. So it's a win-win for us, honestly. But, but there are times, what this text teaches, that it's, it's not that hardship comes upon us. It's not that fiery trials come upon us necessarily because we've been walking unfaithful. But sometimes it actually comes in particular because we are faithful. Because we have been walking with Him and He's actually going to use this to draw us deeper into relationship with Himself as we learn to trust Him with all that we have in the midst of this or that trial. The devil would have us think God is most against us in moments when He is truly most for us. So here this trial comes upon Jehoshaphat right on the heels of his faithfulness and reform. Standing for Yahweh. Regardless of the reason this trial has come upon Jehoshaphat, it is still most certainly a fiery trial nonetheless. The enemies are, are barreling down on him here and it's as if his whole world just lit up in flames. So the question comes in again, what do you do? What do you do? Well, let's look at what he does. I want to try to tease this out by looking at verse 3 there. And I'm going to stop us so we can really consider it and see what's happening. Verse 3 begins like this. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, like we all would be, and... Now pause. Freeze the frame for a moment. Now Jehoshaphat was afraid in view of this, this, this coalescing you know, force of, of his enemies, and blank... He does what? Well, I want to pause and consider some of his options at this point. Because what he does is commendable, and we'll get there. But man, he had a lot of options. And I'll just give you a few of them. Let's, let's, let's tease this out. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he called together his military advisors. And they tried to, you know, you know strategize and come up with a counterattack. Okay. That was one option he had. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and so he called together the priests. And he said, listen, listen, okay, yes, let's still sacrifice to Yahweh, that sounds good, but just in case we're wrong, and there are other gods out there like the Canaanites and other you know, nations around us believe, let's start sacrificing to every god you can think of, so that hopefully we can appease whatever force is behind this uh, oncoming army. Could have done that. Or, then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and so he sent out his envoys to the surrounding nations, like Egypt or, or, or Syria, perhaps, and he said, listen, we need help. I don't care if you're Gentile nations. I don't care if, you, if, you, if you're following other gods. Come on in. We're a team here. My enemy's your enemy, right? Is that how that phrase goes? I think that's right. Uh, my friend, I don't know how the phrase goes, but you know what I'm saying. That's 
another one of his options. And of course, we could continue to go with this, but what we understand from uh, Israel's history even is that plenty of kings, when they were afraid and had to fill in the blank, finish that sentence, they went with some of those things. Let's let's strategize. Let's call in. Let's run to Egypt. Let's let, let's let's sacrifice to other gods. They, they they started doing those things, but not Jehoshaphat. Not here. Not now. Let's look at how he finishes the sentence. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. He set his face to seek. The Lord. In other words, what I'm trying to bring out here is that in essence, Jehoshaphat stopped. He stopped with his own, you know, what we would be prone to kind of the, the, let me figure it out. Let me fix it. Let me save. Let me save this. Let me scramble. Let me try. Let me fill in the blank with this. That didn't work. Let's try this. That didn't work. Let's try this. Instead of just trying all the stuff in his own effort, he just stopped. He just said, enough. Gotta seek the Lord. We'll see what that means when we move into the idea of drop, but he, he stopped. He stopped. Now, where you go when you are afraid says a lot about you and who or what your God really is. I'm going to read that again because I think it's important. Where you go when you are afraid says a lot about you and who or what your God really is. Think about it. Where do you go? Consider yourself personally around. Think of the trials. Think of the stuff you're struggling with. Where do you go? Where are you going right now? Fear grips a hold of your insides. Where are you at? Where are you running? Where are you off to? Because I'll tell you, functionally at least, that is your God. This is a religious question. You could put it in these terms. Where are you going to find salvation? Here's the dilemma. Here's the problem. Where are you going to get saved? How would you fill in that sentence? How would you finish that sentence? Then I was afraid, so I... Pulled out my day planner and set out an action plan. You know, the type A go-getters, you know, that's kind of like my deal. So we're going to fix this. All right. Okay. And I'm like, wow, I haven't even prayed. What am I doing? Coming up with another plan. Reorganizing. What? Really? Stop. (laughs) Maybe some of us, when I'm afraid, I turn on Netflix I'm not noble. I don't try to fix it. I just try to drown it out. I binge a show or whatever, you know, two, three seasons through the night until finally 4 a.m. I conk out and feel all right and wake up and face my life again in the morning. You may do that with booze. You may do that with food. You may do that by being a workaholic. Whatever. There's... I hope you know where I'm going with this. I'll fill this out. But maybe you got health problems, and 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 maybe there's a concern, and and it's scary, no doubt. You're afraid, and so what do you do? Well, maybe you just run to the physician. You run to the doctor as if they're gonna save, as if they're your only hope. And when that one can't figure you out, you go to this one. When that one can't figure you out, you go to this one. Somebody's got to be able to fix me. 
It's interesting. I, I bring that example up because Jehoshaphat's dad, King Asa, is actually reprimanded in Second Chronicles 16, verse 12, because in his disease, we're told, he did not seek the Lord but sought help from physicians. Now, you've got to hear me on this. You've got to hear me, okay? I am not saying that it's necessarily wrong to have an action plan. i got action plans. Some of what I'm asking you to do in this prayer guide is to think about you know, plans for the year and things like that. I'm not necessarily saying, of course, it's not wrong to watch a TV show on Netflix or whatever it may be, or to do like a Lord of the Rings, you know, marathon into the night, which is what I would love to do. I did that back in college days. You know, I'm not saying it's wrong to go to your doctor and, 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 and seek a counsel and get help as best you can. What I am saying is it's wrong to run to them first, to put all your hope there, to, to, to flee in a panic to these things as if they're going to fix you. Really, what we're, what we're calling for here is, listen, stop. Go to God. In per- seek the Lord. And then if He leads you to these other things, go, but go with Him. And go with the peace that he supplies as you, you know, make your plan or you enjoy a TV show with your spouse or you go to the doctor. But there's a different, there's a different foundation. There's a different God. Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. I want to be like that. I want a church full of people like that. I want us to be that way. I want us, when our world catches fire, to stop. You know why they tell you that, right? Because if you go off running, you're just going to fan the flame. You realize that? You're going to make it worse. And as we go off running after filling the blank with this, we make it worse. Stop. Seek the Lord. So we move from stop then to drop. And this brings us into the latter part of verse 3 on down to verse 19. Uh, By drop here, while we see that Jehoshaphat literally does drop to the floor there in verse 18, I'm thinking of it more along the lines of that, that spiritual posture of the heart, right? The idea of falling before God, that, that we are stopping with our own stuff, and now we are dropping before Him. We are falling down before Him, and we are pursuing Him with all that we have. It's not my strength, not my agenda, not my will. It's your, we need you. And so there's this idea of dropping down before God. Uh, things like prayer and fasting and stuff we'll see will bring out here. But that's the stuff I'm talking about. There are really in these verses, I think, four activities in particular that we see are kind of involved in this idea of dropping. This idea of drop. When the fire of trial comes, stop and drop. Activity number one. Um, reading. Reading. Now, to be fair, this one is, is actually not on the surface of the, the, our text this morning, but it is most certainly in the background. And by reading, of course, I have in mind the idea of reading God's word, knowing who God is, knowing uh, his will, his plan, his promise, knowing about the one that you are stopping and dropping in and coming to. Um, what we'll see is, is, is that really this is the place to begin, that you cannot really call on God if you don't know the God on whom you're calling. And Jehoshaphat, really, what we're going to notice is the, he prays the way that he prays because he's been in God's word. 
Because he knows the story of Israel. Because he knows the promises. Because he knows the one to whom he's now crying out to. And we actually see this in the earlier chapters of Second Chronicles. This is a man devoted to the scriptures. So in chapter 17, we're told that he actually sends out his officials into the various cities around uh, his kingdom and says, listen, I want you to teach the law. I want you to teach the scriptures. I want you to go and to, to help people read and understand uh, God's Word. Uh, so verse 9 of chapter 17, then they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Jehoshaphat, in other words, is saying, I want everyone in my kingdom to know this so that when our world catches fire, when the trials come, we know the God we're running to. We know what He said. We know... We know who He is. We know how strong He is. And above all other gods, we know His commitment to us. Such knowledge really is prerequisite to prayer. In fact, what we'll see is that a lot of prayer, and if you read the Psalms, or you, even as we'll show you here, a lot of what prayer is is kind of uh, speaking God's Word back to Him. Saying, I read this, I see you're this, I'm looking out of my circumstances going, there's a disconnect. You say you're going to do it. You say you're that way. No, show me. Show me. Make good on that. Now, in this. But knowledge of His, his word, His will, His way, His promise is almost prerequisite to biblical prayer. And this idea of dropping before Him in prayer and seeking Him involves knowing Him. So again, this is precisely what we see Joseph, Jehoshaphat goes on to do. He's going he's gonna to pray, if you will, God's word back to him. So that leads into activity number two. What else is involved in this idea of dropping? First, this idea of reading, but now second, uh, we see this idea of praying. And this moves us into verses 6 through 12 in particular as Jehoshaphat prays uh, here with all of Judah surrounding him. In these verses, we discern that dropping before the Lord in prayer really involves in many ways uh, uh, three things. And I'll give these to you quick because we don't have time, obviously, to build this out. But it involves recognizing the distinction. That's verse 6. It involves rehearsing the relation, verses 7 through 9, and requesting the provision, verses 10 through 12. I know it sounds like I'm about to do another sermon within a sermon. Uh, but let me at least just bring some of these out for you quickly. Because I think the sequence is important. I think we learn a lot about what prayer is here. First, verse 6, we see this idea of recognizing the distinction. Prayer comes in, and the first thing that Jehoshaphat does as he's dropping before the Lord to pray is, is say, I know my place. I, I see the distinction between you and me. Did you catch that? Verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. So he just, he just stops right there and says, listen, you are God, I am not. You're in heaven, I'm down here scrambling. You rule over all, I feel powerless and weak. 
There's this idea of recognizing the distinction. Too often we come into prayer with our laundry list of stuff as if, honestly, we're kind of the one in heaven giving orders to this, you know, little slave down below who's supposed to kind of do our bidding, and that gets the whole thing wrong. You read the scriptures, you understand who God is. First thing you do is go, listen, I know who you are. And I'm going to take my place at your feet. Right? But, now, this is an important place to start in prayer. But it is not, I don't think, sufficient to kind of stay there. Because at this point, if you just read uh, that verse, God seems powerful. He seems mighty. Who can withstand His hand? He seems sovereign. But He doesn't necessarily yet seem good. He could be kind of this angry despot in the sky who just, His will is done. And so you're just kind of bowing, hoping maybe, you know, you can appease him. Or like those prophets of Baal, hey, if we, if we do the right things, we can get them on our side, maybe, but we don't know. They're kind of capricious and, and they do what they want. God is powerful, but is he good? God is in heaven, but is he, uh, here for me on earth? And that really is what moves us to that verses 7 through 9 and what I'm saying with this idea of rehearsing the relation. You see, God is certainly God in the fullest sense in that He is altogether separate from us as human beings, as His creatures. And yet, He is also Father and friend, caregiver and companion. He is not only high above, but like I prayed even in the beginning, He is right here. It's this incredible intersection. One of the most stunning intersections of truth is this idea that God is both transcendent and infinitely above us, and yet at the same time, imminent, present, intimately, right here with us. And of course, that is what Jesus manifests in the full, right? When He comes in the incarnation, it is Emmanuel, with us, God. He's so far above. We got the distinction, but He's right here. And He loves us, and He's gracious, and He's good. It's amazing. So Jehoshaphat goes on to, to in his prayer and he kind of transitions from the greatness of God now to his goodness and, and grace. Rehearses the relationship that God has had with Israel through the years. He says this, verse 7, Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is on this house, and we will cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. The idea, again, I just have to speak in summary fashion. The idea here is, He's saying, God, we have a history. We go way back, you and me. This isn't this inch deep thing, this kind of, you know, uh, 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 one-off sort of relationship. Like we're kind of dating and we'll see what he thinks about me tomorrow. 
No, this is a God who has covenanted himself to me and his people. It's as if uh, uh, Jehoshaphat kind of does one of those ancestry kit te- DNA test things. Like, you know, they, they present that as like, you're going to know your family story. It's going to be amazing. You're going to sit around your kids. You're going to tell them. And then, you know, yeah, Frederick moved to Germany and we, you know, whatever. Like, you know your, 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 your ancestry. You know your story. And, it, and it's almost like uh, Jehoshaphat is here saying, I know my story. I know how, how, how you, you chose Abraham, my forefather. You chose him you, and you called him friend, he says. You, you walked intimately with him. And then I know, I know, we celebrate Passover every year. I know how, how, how with a mighty hand you brought out the people of Israel from Egypt. You called them your people. He says that right here. And I know how in the wilderness and through 40 years you were faithful to these people through Moses and Joshua. You got them through and they entered the land of promise. You did not, not one word of the Lord fell, but He upheld His promise to His people as they passed through the Jordan into the promise. I know that about you, God. I understand our relationship. And then I know how you raised up David and you raised up Solomon. And how you brought your, 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 the capital city of Jerusalem and you set your, 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 your presence here. The temple is here. The kingdom is here. And I know when Solomon was dedicating the temple, he said, listen, my people are gonna, they're gonna come into this house and they're gonna call on you, Yahweh, and they're gonna pray and you are gonna answer in their day of affliction. He said, I read the Bible. I know my story. And here I am in that house calling on that same God. If you didn't fail them, don't tell me you're going to fail me. You're not. Right? That's what's packed into those. He's rehearsing the relationship that he has with this God. Just layers of covenant. And of course, we can take it even further. We got the cross. We got everything, the temple, everything, David. I mean, Jesus is the greater David, the greater Joshua, the greater Moses, the greater... He's the fulfillment of all. He's the yes and amen. He is, he is the, the, the seal and the surety of all the covenant promises written in His blood. That's how we get... We go, man, you did not withhold, withhold your only Son from me, but gave Him, even when I was an enemy... How much more, now that we've been made friends, are you going to be faithful to me even in the midst of this fire trial? God, my world is on fire. Put it out. For your glory. For my good. See, rehearsing the relationship that we have, that He has. It kind of moved into, you probably noticed it, He, he actually hasn't yet as of verse 9, made the request. And that's important to notice. He said, I know that you're God and I'm not. Start there. And I know that you're good and you've been for us and you said all this and you've done all this and you're faithful. Okay, we got it. Now, he's ready. Now he's ready to request the provision. And so we see it there in verses 10 through 12. And now behold, he says, here it comes. The men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you've given us to inherit. 
O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And this for me brings it all together. Because essentially he's saying, God, you are great and you are good. Now get glory for yourself by displaying that greatness and goodness on my behalf for me. Show the nations who you are by coming and providing right here for me. Your glory, my God. I love that last statement there, and I pray it often. Some have said it's one of the most precious statements in all the Bible. The way that verse 12 ends there. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, I wonder if you've felt that way. Perhaps you've been feeling that way right now. And we may be prone to feel ashamed about it. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. You ever felt that way? Listen to me. Don't be ashamed of it. It's good. You see, trials are teaching us something. Trials are taking us somewhere. And it's really, really important. What trials actually do is bring us back into reality. They, they, they break, they burst our, our self-important, self-reliant uh, bubbles and, and bring us back into the world as it really is. They bring us back to sanity, actually. Where we see, God, you're God. I'm just, listen to me, who am I? I am a vapor. And I act like I know. It's so crazy. Our culture aims for exactly the opposite of what Jehoshaphat says here, right? So he says, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And he says that in front of all his people. You think, man, a king. That sounds pretty weak. That sounds like he's vulnerable. I want the throne if he doesn't know what to do. I know what. But he's saying that. And what we often try to say is, listen, I know just what to do. Everybody, eyes on me. Trials come in to expose that for just the, 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 the deception, the mirage that it is. We are not to be dependent moment by moment on ourselves, our wisdom, our strength, but on God. That's the truth, whether we admit it or not. This next breath, grace from above. Now, if I could be real here for a moment, I, uh, part of the reason why I wanted to, to even lead the church into prayer uh, for like a week of prayer um, is because of some of the ways I feel like God has, has actually been doing some of this in my own heart and in my own life. And even here in this church, um, I don't know, and some of you don't know the story or where we've been. Some of you guys are just a couple weeks into Merciel or you're a visitor today. We're grateful to have you. But it, it's been a crazy six to eight months in this place. Um, there have been, I, I've not done the, 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 you know, actually sat down and counted, but I think we're a small church. I think it's been somewhere around 30 to 40, upwards of more, I don't know. People have had to move uh, out of our church for various reasons. A lot of people just leaving Silicon Valley. This place has an incredible turnover rate. 
And that number maybe doesn't sound all that significant, but then you consider, uh, for me, I'm only about five years now into this, I've never seen anything like that in the first four years here. It was a lot of, not just kind of fringe members who you maybe didn't even know their name or so they're here every now and then, but a lot of the core, long-standing leaders in this church were gone. So I, I don't know if you noticed, but... Uh, both of my elders, the guys who preceded me as elders in this church, within two, three months, gone. Okay. And then a number of our deacons were, are gone. Our worship leader, uh, re, you know, uh, had to be replaced, uh, and because her, her job, uh, moved her to Austin. My director of communications, uh, another job happening now in Atlanta, uh, for them. A number of home group leaders having to move. Setup team, where are they? Oh, you're looking at them. Uh, <laughs> not really. Paul is amazing. He wasn't here today, but usually he's here. And that guy, if you see Paul, give him a hug and say it's from Nick. Alright? <laughs> Kids ministry. Christina sent out an email saying, okay, uh, we've had in the past, you know, I don't know, again, like six to eight months, we've had, we've lost like 15 volunteers. Okay, that's insane. So we're just sitting here going, God, okay, what are you doing? There are times, if I'm honest, where I feel disoriented by it. I'm like, I can't even keep up with it. You may have even noticed, like our website, the leadership's all wrong. Cause I can't keep up with all the people that are moving. There was a while there where we stopped even putting a picture in the bulletin that was right. It's like, I, we can't keep taking the picture of the leaders and saying goodbye to the leader the next day. So there are times where it's, it's felt disorienting. Times where I'm like, God... I don't understand. Now, I'm not in any way trying to liken this to Jehoshaphat's trial. That's a little bit of a bigger deal. They want to kill you, okay? People here are nice. People leaving, that's hard. <laughs> they, they wanted to kill him, all right? Me, it's like, oh, I'm going to miss my friends. God, what are you doing? But, nonetheless, you sit back and you go, what are you doing? What are you up to? What do you want? Well, I'll tell you what I think he's, he's, he's up to. I'll tell you what I think he's after. I think he's after this. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I think he's pressing me, pressing us uh, into himself. Getting us to lean in. Not so that, well, we just have a nice moment or a nice week of prayer, but so that we learn. That is the way of life always. And Paul says, whether I am in deficiency and lack, or I have abundance, I have learned the secret. It is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am leaning in. It is, it is never, well, shoot, during this season, I don't know what to do, so my eyes are on you. But next season, I know just what to do. No, it's always, in good and in hard, God, we don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. Now it's actually been amazing to see God provide just enough along the way. And it's been really kind of fun. And so you get this kind of sense that God, He's just kind of getting us ready for our next adventure as a church. But there are times where it's disorienting and there are times where it's actually kind of exciting. All right. That was all just activity number two, praying. Now, I'm obviously going to go fast here as we bring things to a close. I said there were four 
kind of activities I see uh, connected in this idea of dropping. So stop, there's the trial, cut fire, stop, drop. Within that idea is, is reading, knowing God's word, praying, praying that word back to him, saying, make good on your promise. Now we come to this idea of fasting. Activity number three, fasting. And we saw that uh, back up in verse three, if you noticed it. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. We read that, but here it continues. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. He proclaimed a fast. Now, I don't have time to talk to you about what I think, you know, a full theology of fast, fasting may, may be, but a way that I've found helpful to kind of understand what fasting is. It's, it's always in the Bible connected to prayers and seeking God intensely for some, uh, some deliverance of some sort. But the way I've seen it is it's almost like, imagine in your prayer you're kind of writing this spiritual sentence, the sentence from your heart to God. Well, fasting is kind of like putting a, a physical, if you will, a bodily exclamation point on the end of that sentence, as if to say, listen, God, I want you, I need you to do this, I need your help, and here's how bad I want it. (laughs) I I, I don't need food, I need you. I'm not hungry for this, I'm hungry for you. I want to see you. You see, fasting, it's kind of like throwing the text in italics or bold. It's saying, that's how bad, God. It's a way of seeking Him intensely. It's a way of living this out. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You gotta show up. You gotta think about this for Jehoshaphat in his context. For all he knows, he's about to go to war. Think about this with me. What, what are guys doing, like before a, a, a sports, a big game or something? Man, they're gearing up. They got like power bars and they're all, you know, they're doing their training and their stretches, their prep. And, and Jehoshaphat, here comes the enemies and he says, all right, everybody, <laughs> drain your bodies of any fuel and energy <laughs> and life. I mean, how do you, have you ever fasted? How do you feel at the time that when the fasting, I'm, I fasted a few weeks ago, and I was like, by the end of the day, I'm like, why am I so grumpy? <laughs> Hold on, I'm snapping at my wife. I'm like, oh, honey, I'm sorry. That's right. I'm getting hangry right now, right? That's the idea. We, we, we drain our body of the fuel that it needs. And Jehoshaphat here is saying, okay, the army's coming. Now, everybody stretch. Everybody get your power bars. Everybody get ready. But everybody stop eating. Stop. Drop. Let's fast. Let's pray. I mean, he's pushing all his chips in here on Yahweh. You you get that? He said, it's not my strength, not the strength of my army. It's got to be God. You got to show up. This is how bad we need it. We're putting it all in on you. We don't have any contingency plans. It's awesome. It's awesome. There's no safer bet than betting on God. Finally, activity number four is this idea of assembling. The last thing that I want to bring out is this. In our text, if you noticed, they do this praying, and they do this fasting, this reciting of God's word or whatever. They do this whole dropping down low thing together. Don't do it in a closet. Jehoshaphat doesn't run off to a closet somewhere. I mean, that's fine. Jesus said, pray. Pray in your closet. Absolutely, that sounds great. 
But Jehoshaphat sees this thing going down, and instead he says, get everybody here. There's power when God's people come together and they seek Him and they pray together. One voice, one heart. And He knows that. So verse 4, Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And then we see down in verse 13, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. I mean, that's dedication. Have you ever tried to do a prayer meeting with little kids running around? We're not even going to try that this afternoon. You take your kids over to my house, drop them off so that we can have a sane and peaceful time praying over at Chris Keener's house. But that's it. I mean, that's it. They're going, we're all in. We need you, God, to show up. So all the people come, even the kids. And here's the point in all of this. After they assemble and pray, we read in verse 14 that the Spirit of the Lord shows up. falls on this guy, Jehaziel. Spirit gives him a word for Jehoshaphat and the people. And it happens, we're told, and specifically she tries to bring out this emphasis, in the midst of the assembly. Verse 14. As they assembled, as they gathered, the Spirit comes and a word is given that fits right into the situation they are facing. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.26, something that I want you to hear. When we come together, each one, he's talking about spiritual gifts now, he says each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation for building up. See, when you come together as the body of Christ, when you assemble, certain things happen in those moments that don't happen in your prayer closet. You see, other people are, are, are moved, are used by the Spirit to bless you, and you will be moved by the Spirit to bless them. And sometimes, like in this text, it comes in the form of a word, maybe a scripture that's on your heart for this person, or you just wanted to read it out in the congregation, or maybe even a prophetic word of some sort that you just want to say, hey, I feel like God may be saying this. I don't know if you've had moments like this where you go, wow, how did you know that? How did you I mean... We all read the Bible. Sometimes, maybe that morning you were in a text and you're like, wow, that, God, I need to see you do that. And then a friend texts you that verse. You go, what was that? I mean, I've had moments like that. They're powerful. The Spirit of God comes and moves and it just kind of fits the moment. He meets you in that space as you assemble together. And I just want you to see here, very quickly, how this word fit right for, to, into Jehoshaphat's situation, right into what he was struggling with. No, notice this. Jehoshaphat says, verse 3, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. My world just caught fire, and I'm afraid. So the Spirit of God says through Jehaziel, verses 15 and 17, do not be afraid. Jehoshaphat says, uh, verse 12, I feel powerless in the face of this, this, this great horde that's coming against me, I feel powerless against them. There's nothing I can do. So the Spirit of God says when they assemble, falls on, on Jehaziel and says through him, do not be dismayed, verse 15, at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. 
Jehoshaphat says, we don't know what to do. Verse 12. So the Spirit of God falls as they assemble and speaks through Jehaziel. You don't know what to do? Here's what you need to do. Tomorrow, go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Verse 17. Thank you very much. Fits like a glove. The things that he was struggling with, the place that the nation was in when they assembled and sought, God spoke right into it. He moves. He uses that. He meets you in that place. There are some things I think that just simply won't crack open or won't fall into place until his people actually assemble together. Stop and drop. Read his word, pray fast. Now, with that then, I invite you again as I close to consider uh, participating in the week of prayer here. Um, I'm excited to see what God will do. I, come this afternoon, uh, like Tolu said, if you want, if you feel up to it, fast at lunch or dinner or something and, and, and meet us at, at that um, at the Keener residence, 3 to 5 p.m. Let's wait on God there. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this week even uh, there. We'll seek Him. Uh, throughout the week, I encourage you, Read this guide. Go through it in the morning. Use it for your devotions. Uh, let the, the, the stuff that's there inspire your prayers. And don't just kind of touch and go, really pray. Go for a walk on the hills. You've got to get unplugged and get outside of your, your office, your house, whatever. Go outside. Pray. Seek Him. Uh, tap a person, maybe from your home group, DNA group, or a friend, and, and say, hey, listen, we, let's be prayer partners this week. Let's get together at least once or twice, and let's pray together through some of these things. And as you're praying and whatnot, take notes in the space for journaling and things like that that I give you in there, and come back next week and, and feel free. Now, just to be clear, we're not going to have like a, hey, what did you do? And everybody takes a mic and share. No, just, just feel freedom to share. What God has put on your heart is share with the person next to you around the table or share with me if you feel God has something that He wants to direct the church. We just want to seek God together. Like I said, this idea of we don't know what to do, our eyes are on you, it's not a season. It's a way of life. And so I'm, I'm happy to begin this way of life with you guys here. And I'm excited to see what God is going to do. With that, let's stop, let's drop, and let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for the ways that you speak to us through your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to show up this week as your people gather and pray. As we seek you in the mornings alone, as we meet up with friends in the afternoons or lunch, as we come together tonight or next week or in our home groups, God. Our eyes are on you. I pray that you'd come, you'd speak, you'd direct us, you'd guide us, that it would not be our will that's done, but yours. In Jesus' name, amen.